this is Avon. And this is Kaylee. And welcome to Thought Theory. Today's question of the episode is how free is the free press? So I'm not going to lie, in order to prepare for this episode, I first started at Crash Course on YouTube. Really? They have like a whole <laughs> section on media literacy, like a whole playlist. That's cool. And like, I highly recommend it because the fact that there is media literacy just shows how far the free press has gone in terms of like how it's developed and stuff. Because if you go back in time, uh, when writing first started, mm-hmm. Plato, like the philosopher later had a lot of opinions on it, surprisingly, and they weren't exactly like, oh yeah, the, uh, people should know everything, we should preserve everything. Through his play called Phaedrus, he actually expressed that he was against writing and really? he was against people writing things down and keeping it preserved. So was it more about sort of the audio, like uh, storytelling rather than writing to share? or Exactly. Like okay. he thought that if you were to write down your ideas, people could take them out of context and then oh. manipulate them or take them or like take certain parts of them or say you mean something else than you actually do, which is kind of ironic. It's such a universal <laughs> thought though. Like even in today's world, that still applies. Exactly. That, that, that um, fear of every university student plagiarizing or taking a piece of published literature out of its context and interpreting it the wrong way. Exactly. <laughs> like that's your biggest fear when you're writing an essay. And yeah. Plato thought of it like who knows how many centuries ago. Right. So he was like, against writing. Writing, as you can probably tell, caught on despite Plato's like right. initial dislikes, I guess. So writing in the form of like sharing what's going on or sharing important content was almost always controlled by the people who had power, which isn't that much of a surprise. If you go through ancient history and ancient Rome, they used to call it the Acta Diurna, and in China they used to call it the Dia Bao, which mm-hmm. were both like government-issued bulletins. Right. And they were usually either produced on metal or stone. What also strikes me sort of in that era is the influence of religion. Like the Bible comes to mind as the first written, written mass-produced, mass-produced uh, printed book. Exactly. So that's that's actually a great point because if we keep going, like mm-hmm. like right before the um, the Reformation, right before Martin Luther, so around the time Martin Luther was spreading his ideas, that's when the Gutenberg Press was released, right? Mm-hmm. So before then, it was either um, just spoken word about what was happening in court mm-hmm. and everything that was written down. Uh, only the people who were literate could interpret, right? Which is a very small percentage of the population at that time. Exactly. And within that population, most of them were religious or had religious affiliations. Right. Or somehow tied to the government. Exactly. <clears throat> and the government was, there was no such thing as like a separation between church and state. It was all or nothing. So right before the Gutenberg press, uh, the news was very much controlled by the elites, the elite government, the elite religion, like the common folk were not literate, they did not have access to what was going on. So there wasn't a lot of pluralization of ideas. It was just basically what they what you hear from this person is what's the real truth. There was no fake truth, no different theories or ideas. Hmm. Then the Gutenberg press is made and everything changes. Like Right. It's crazy how quickly everything changes. So I assume there was, um, at that time when the printing press was developed, I, I assume there was like a golden age of write, like writing. People who were otherwise not able to share their ideas were able to share them in a way that at least somebody else, maybe not everybody, but at least somebody else could. You're half right there because um, it wasn't that everyone was able to share them because it was still pretty expensive at that time. Right, and but exclusive. Was, yeah, exactly. But it was that uh, more people were becoming literate because they were exposed to it. Right. It was the same 
prints, it was just more people had access to them. Whereas before it was just spread amongst the government and people who were literate. Right, so we're not at the point where other people were creating. It was just about what was pre-existing and then sort of sharing that more with more people. Exactly, like uh, literally right around this time, Martin Luther, his, I think it's 95? Theses, Theses, yeah. yeah. So he had made them right before the printing press. And then the printing press happens and then it distributes it I everywhere. See. So it starts this huge reformation. And that's kind of where you get the first like restrictions on the media issue because mm-hmm. the church was totally against them spreading right. the 95 theses because it goes against what they advocate. But the creators and who are spreading all these, mm-hmm. they are independent from the church, which the church did not anticipate. So you see like the beginning of a little bit of a conflict between the two. After publishing becomes more and more popular, mm-hmm. the petty press is created. So the petty press is basically the Gutenberg press, but it's cheaper to produce hence penny exactly okay (laughs) and so this way a lot more people are getting their ideas published like you could be anybody and if you have like enough money and like a A good idea exactly or even you're just able to write it down you can get it published in the newspaper and so there's like this huge conglomerate of like um opposing theories and just like rising levels sharing all that good stuff you know Interesting. So that would be like the golden age of writing. Right. And so what, do you have a date on that? Because I'm, I'm curious, like what the lag was between Luther's 95 Theses and the Penny Press, because I feel like there was a bit of a gap there. 1830. Okay. Interesting. And so because it was super cheap to create and publish things, it was easier for people to have access to what was going on like in the courts or in the government. Mm-hmm. So more people were interested in it because it was so cheap. Right. And I assume on the reverse side, journalism and the profession of being a journalist, was that still considered going against some sort of superpower? Like, was it sort of the mud rakers of what we see in like post-World War about like stirring up the sort pod, of the grimy yeah. sort of profession? Was that... Uh, the case in 1830? From my readings, no. We're not yet at the point where you're trying to find something wrong with the system because at that point it's still so new. So it's like they passed this legislation or whatever. Then, oh my God, even though you're a farmer in the outskirts of nowhere, you know that they passed this legislation. Whereas before you could have gotten arrested for it Mm. without even knowing that, oh, that's the law. And then if we keep on going a little further into the United States and we get to a little more current, Mm -hmm. There's a couple of big cases in the United States where you see the conflict of media versus government slash church because eventually you get the separation. Say in church, yeah, that's the yes. thing. Secularism. Secularism. And that's when you see the limitations on the government's power. So there's a couple of like key cases that for the U.S. in itself, because I know um, freedom of speech, the First Amendment, yep. such a big deal there. Fun fact, it's not actually the First Amendment that protects people's uh, freedom of speech, people's rights to their freedom of speech. Hmm. The First Amendment only regulates Congress. I see. And the federal government. It's the 14th Amendment, Section 1, <laughs> that actually uh, like regulates to the states and the people of the, themselves in the states. Wow, so people have been wrong, wrong this entire time. <laughs> yeah, like it's just like the because you only ever hear the people who say the first are First Amendment rights. Interesting. Who knew? But yeah, so um, big cases surrounding media versus limitations. The first one I want to talk about is the New York Times uh, versus Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Basically, that one said that the media can talk about whatever they want. They can publish whatever they want about anyone, and that person can't stop them. Because if they did, it infringes against their 14th Amendment rights. If you're the person who's like been wrong or who's been written about, obviously you're pissed about that because that means that they can straight up lie about you, right? Right. That so doesn't seem very fair. Fair. <laughs> yeah. 
So if that happens to you, you can sue them for libel. Mm-hmm. But so this happened in New York Times v. Sullivan, where they Sullivan tried suing the New York Times for libel, and he actually lost the case. You have to prove that the reporter had malignant intent. They knew what they were saying was a lie, and they still chose to print it. And that's why like those cases almost never win, because how can you prove that like oh you knew that was a lie? That seems like um an obvious fault in. The system, right? The system, yeah. I, I wonder if there are any sort of activists or anybody that actually knows enough about this to actually care about it. Because I feel like you could really misuse the justice system a little bit. And... For sure. But I think the reason it's like that is to protect the media in itself. Because like playing the opposite side here a little mm-hmm. bit, almost anyone can sue you for libel if it's... Say someone murdered someone, but they were found innocent. But you know that, like, they were just found innocent on technicality or something. You know. I see. But if you report that they're guilty, then technically you're lying because they've been found innocent. But at the same time, you're sharing what everyone knows to be true, almost. So it's just a, a technicality that happens exactly. to be not a hundred percent. I don't think fair is the right word, but a hundred percent moral. I exactly. And the thing is with the media too. Who knows what's well, not because as the time the printing press was happening too, just mm-hmm. to like jump back a little bit, this thing called yellow journalism was on the rise, I guess you could say. Yeah. So basically what yellow journalism is, it's like fake news kind of thing. <laughs> but the old version. <laughs> exactly. Before Trump, you know? Yeah. It's basically um, when the purpose of journalism is to sell, not to share. And that's kind of what we see now. Yeah, that's really interesting because I know nowadays, especially on platforms like YouTube, when content goes from being purely creative, when let's say a YouTuber X is doing a video, when they sh- sort of share their opinions, their life or whatever, but then they focus on this one product. I, I feel like it's becoming more mainstream now to say this is sponsored, like have a little subtitle yeah. that say this is sponsored content, you know? Well, money, that's exactly it. Eh? Yeah. Like you get money out of it, so you want to do what keeps getting you money. Right. And ultimately, writing is an art. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you have to commercialize that somehow. But it's capitalist society. <laughs> that's Not whole, to get into that. That's a whole other episode, folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, interesting. Yeah. So yellow journalism was on the rise, and like it's basically what you see today with tabloid, and that's kind of where um, mm. I'm jumping all over the place. But that's kind of where the New York Times v. Sullivan case happened because it's using scandal mongering and it's using like exaggerations and stuff to get people to sell, so it gives off the wrong impression about someone. Well, it's interesting that you leave off at sort of yellow journalism and media literacy because there are different types of media, and I think it's good to sort of define those or at least set up a framework so that we can talk about it. So there's social media, there's TV, movies, they do a lot of sponsored content in movies or product placements. There's also podcasts. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, and now with the rise of Netflix, it's super easy to consume a lot of media Documentaries. short amount of time. Exactly. And so it's really interesting to then say, okay, well, we have all these different types of media and there are so many different side effects or ways that media can influence us in our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. Whether that be what Timbits you get or what brand of coffee you get in the morning to something like what car seat to buy your kid. Advertisements, marketing, eh? Exactly. So it's interesting because media, especially with the rise of social media, people, I think, or maybe this is just me, but this is what I've sort of 
distilled that a lot of your self-identity and self-worth is linked to what you share to other people well especially with the new generation like instagram you get paid to be an influencer yeah and so with more data and more sharing that obviously results in a huge wealth of information that is at people's fingertips and currently we don't have a way to sift through all of that data and distill it really into something that's representative of the wealth of information that's, let's say, on the internet in a whole about a subject. Wikipedia comes close, <laughs> but apart from that, it's You're kind just of impossible. overwhelmed. Exactly. And so I'll talk about ways that media conglomerates distill that information through vertical integration and through sharing what they think through a bunch of their subsidiaries. So it's interesting because because essentially large media companies, I have a complete list here of the top sort of worldwide. Some popular ones, Walt Disney with a market course, value yeah. of 72.8 billion US dollars. Oh my god. Um, AT&T, Hearst Communications, uh, National Amusements, and the list goes on. They're global companies that have subsidiaries like, for instance, Comcast, which is the largest media conglomerate in the US at the moment, owns things like NBC, Universal Pictures, Telemundo, Bravo. All of these companies are owned by this large company, uh, Comcast. And so it's really interesting because in 1983, 90% of what we consume, content, was controlled by 50 companies. And in 2011, there was a study done, they took the same amount of real estate, the 90% of media was controlled by six companies in the US. So you think you're getting like all these different sources, but really it's but, just six people. Right. And it's really interesting because these companies reinvent themselves in order to create more value for consumers. And you may be wondering or asking yourselves, well, how do media conglomerates come about? The answer is mergers. Mm. So a bunch of similar minded smaller companies. Granted, these companies that I'm talking about are major private or public corporations, but they sort of either through mutual goals in political views, religious views, cult like cultural views, they realize each other because in the free market we know that competition is better, right? Like if you notice that your competitor is producing similar content, it's not advantageous. It's better if you have mergers of those two competitors into something that monopolizes the market. So aren't there laws against that? Yeah, funny you say that. I'm gonna jump to Canada then yeah. <laughs> because here in Canada, in the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Act, it's an act that is completely or intended to be unbiased. So this uh, act essentially imposes limits on companies to make sure that no company controls more than 45% of total television audience. I feel like 45% is a huge percentage still though. Yeah. But here's the thing, in Canada, there's maybe like two or three major media companies, and I'm sure you know, they're Rogers, Bell, <laughs> um, and they account for 43% of all revenues. It's interesting because before I mentioned vertical integration, and so how these large conglomerates work is they buy up or merge with a bunch of little companies or large companies <laughs> through the millions, billions, I'm, I'm talking like billions in revenue here of, the, of combined wealth to then form a conglomerate to then 
channel or strategically choose topics that promote their own company mm-hmm. or promote their own political, religious agenda. See, that just makes you feel bad for the small businessman then. <laughs> well, yeah, but in order to sort of maybe play the devil's advocate here, there may be some positives in domination of a market. Something in today's world that's really useful or that's in high demand is information fast and information that is simple. Mm -hmm. And so if, let's say, you get your news from this app that is owned by, let's say, Bell, if they choose, they can then funnel information to that one app through a variety of their subsidiaries, which to the naked eye seem like different sources, right? Mm -hmm. And most often, that's the case. Mm -hmm. It's not truly diversification, but it appears so. And to a certain extent, it is because different people are writing the content, but it's, but it's all the same agenda. owned by mm-hmm. one company. And so a person using this app could then see, okay, here's sort of like the news of the day from a variety of these different sources and be like, okay, this is one place I can go to and then I trust for media, specifically, let's say, news. How do you know you trust it, though? That's the thing, because it's only one. Well, exactly, but a lot of people don't know, right, that there's larger companies at play here. I'll go back to my Comcast example in the U.S. So they own NBC, and it's really interesting because there's a phenomenon called interlocking directorates. What's that? Which means a director on the board for NBC, let's say, may be sitting also on the board of another prominent company. Isn't that a major conflict? No, because it's not necessarily the company that's owned by Comcast, let's say. But it's interesting because multiple board members that sit on the NBC board also sit on Coca-Cola, Dell, Morgan Chase, Home Depot, Kellogg. Well, I don't know about that. Like, um, the whole point of a board of directors is to find sort of a strategic direction for a company. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's kind of contrast to what we're taught in economics that it should be, you know, trade secrets. Mm-hmm. Competition is always Keep sort of... your friends close and your... Enemies closer. Yeah. Like, competition is a serious thing in business. There's also NBC directors that sit on sort of interesting organizations that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Like, like Texaco, which is a U.S. oil company. So you would ask yourself, why is an NBC board of directors sitting on the Texaco because board it of directors? Money. That's the thing. Like the more I see it that way, the more I see that they're pursuing their own interests, almost. You know, because they're thinking more of it as a business and a corporation than as a means to share what's actually going on, mm-hmm. which is the root of like the press. You know. Right. Expose, exposing and saying the things that people wouldn't normally find out. Mm. Like the politician says one thing, here's what he's actually doing. I think this is a good place to bring in sort of another regulating body almost, mm-hmm. but more so in the fact that it's awareness. Mm-hmm. So there's this organization called World Press Freedom Index, mm-hmm. which essentially is a survey that is given to sociologists, uh, I believe politicians, lawyers, professionals to essentially answer for all of the countries of the world. And it's created in uh, 20 different languages across the world. And so the main idea is to, in these survey questions, ask these professionals, is the media independent? 
is there media pluralism? Yeah. You, you were talking about pluralism. That it's only owned by so few companies. There's not much pluralism, especially if those board of like the board of directors have conflicting interests. Whether that be in other media companies or in non-media companies, but still could be related to the topics that they, for instance, write about exactly. or report about. Like say you're predicting something regarding stocks. Right. You could make it a lot, like you can almost not control, but have heavy influence on the the shares of a certain oil company by what you report on their doings. Right, and, and I think are. it's really important to emphasize that reporting and writing or videography, so to speak, is sort of covered by a veil of creativity and mm -hmm. saying, well, this is what I believe, or this is my opinion, or this is just art. And I feel like we should make that distinction because it's uh, it's really interesting because, for instance, how do you justify that, oh, I didn't in intend to, to drive up the, the stock price of, uh, let's say, an oil company with my reporting? You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't um, prove it, that's the thing. Right, because it's subjective and creative to a certain extent, right? But and at the same time, there's a purpose almost. Like, I find if you're sharing your art, mm. it kind of implies a different purpose than if you were, say, just expressing your art. It's an interesting distinction. For sure. So back to the World Press Freedom Index, I researched this mm -hmm. and I was kind of surprised by how the countries rank. And so just to explain more about what the categories are, there are tests for transparency in social media and in media that's distributed by TV reporters. Like, Let me guess, China and Russia are at the bottom of the list. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because North Korea... Oh, um, I forgot about them. <laughs> yeah, North Korea scores at the bottom. And so... How they score it is it's a number score, and so 0 to 15 is considered good, Okay. 15 to 25 is considered fair. And so they also look for things like legislative frameworks, mm -hmm. things that you're talking about like legal precedents mm -hmm. is important in sort of analyzing how these countries rank. At the top of the list at 7.63 is Norway. Behind that, Sweden, Netherlands, and then Canada ranks 18th. Their score is 15.28. So I remember, um, remember a couple of years ago there was some sort of incident in Canada, and I remember all the American press was talking about how it was a terrorist uh, attack, mm. and the Canadian press did not even say like the word terrorism or anything. They were just like, this attack has happened. This, we don't know what's going on. In Canada, there are a few major names that we think of. Mm -hmm. Bell Rogers. Shaw, the Shaw family, is oh, also yeah. um, a prominent one. And it's also really interesting because we have CBC, which is, of course, government-owned. For sure, but everyone trusts that too, which is almost ironic because you don't expect them to expose their own flaws almost. Well, yeah, and I think that's a culture thing. Mm -hmm. um, I know in certain countries that people tend to trust governments more if governments have been known to provide social benefits, education, free health care, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. More socialist ideas rather than fend for yourself, capitalism is number one. There's no questions asked. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. it's a complete contrast. I have contrast. no idea what countries you're hinting at right now. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, and so the World Press Freedom Index. So the U.S. Um, ranks 45th and has a score of 23.73. That does not surprise me. Yeah, and I feel like with Trump, it's unfortunate, but it, the number seems to be rising so it's in a bad way. Worse. <laughs> I'd be interesting to get your opinion. In a lot of articles that I read, there was a line drawn between... 
Trump, Stalin, and Mussolini Mm -hmm. in the sense that they viewed the free press as, I know in Stalin's case, the intelligentsia, Mm -hmm. sort of the researchers, the writers, the The press. The ones reporting, basically, yeah. Were considered to be awful and need to be essentially extinct. It was language that is kind of hauntingly similar to what Trump is doing now in terms of criticisms with CNN and so forth. Was- well, even just those comparisons, like I kind of find that that reflects the press of the times too in the way we talk. We talk in exaggerations. Like yellow journalism is all about capturing people's attentions with using overdramatic words, you know, like you say, oh, I want to die when you have a test tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's things like that. Like, yes, the stuff Trump is saying, in no way I'm defending him, but I think the fact that the journals are making those allusions to Stalin Mussolini aren't an accident. It's not just like, oh, um, e- we've done this deep analytical like research experiment and we think that Trump is the dictator because he's using these big these words like Stalin Mussolini. In Stalin Mussolini, it was more relevant because that wasn't the diction of the times, you know? Mm. Whereas now, like, the stuff Trump says is horrible and it's complete, it's like obsolete. It's also reflective of the way we speak now and the way the media speaks. Like, and the way we share it. Exactly. Um, and who reads it. Because at the moment, literacy is incredibly high. In like, North America, yeah. Yeah. And so it's no surprise that, you know, in the hands of everybody, whether they be university educated or college educated or not um they're able to form opinions based off of what they read with i'd say maybe minimal thought into perhaps who wrote it (laughs) exactly and Um, the thing is there's so like you said earlier that there's so much information most people just tap out so people use this and like these kind of words to grab people's attention because again they want people and there's the selling aspect of course exactly so why should we care about the world Press Freedom Index. Well, it gives a really interesting data point that is easy to understand and can be perhaps used to justify the free press. Almost. The free press. Back to sort of my devil's advocate um, <laughs> questions. Also, something that may be a positive when it comes to monopolization of media mm-hmm. is that, well, A, it's convenient. B, with media sources like CNN, CBC, they tend to have a lot of resources because they're owned by very mm-hmm. wealthy companies or themselves are very profitable. So it's interesting because there's also another line. With more money, there's hypothetical doors that have been opened to them to create sure. better quality for content. Sure. And so all the more reason for the average consumer to say, oh, this looks good, it must be true, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? They're able to do more research on what the consumer wants. wants. But also um, provide quality journalism in some mm-hmm. cases. Um, I think that's really important to well, for sure, say. like they're able to afford to, you know, go to the Middle East and expose a government because they have the money that you don't know if you're going to make money off of this project, but it's an okay loss if you don't. Mm-hmm. Like you're able to swallow that. Yeah. And it's also interesting too, um, my third point when it comes to perhaps if there are any positives <laughs> in media conglomerates or um, the absence of pluralism. The absence of pluralism is the fact that there's, there's something really comforting. Now, This is highly controversial. What are you going to (laughs) say? But there's something comforting in having unity, Mm -hmm. whether that be in how we act or what we write about or what we care about. Generally, there are major trends that lead people to write about certain things. For sure. But 
I ask you this then, why should you pursue something just because it's comforting? My point exactly, <laughs> because progress, at least in my opinion, is all about the uncomfortable. Exactly. You want, especially in writing, you want to sort of challenge the status quo, or that is what is characteristically happening when it comes to creating content and mm -hmm. media. I don't know, is it better to have sort of a, some sort of standard when it comes to how media is is given to people? Should there be more government regulation and in fact-checking? If anything, I think there should be more legislation separating the media from the government. From the government. You know how the Bank of, I think it's the Bank of Canada, we learned about in economics, how they're separate from the government, but they're on the payroll mm -hmm. of the government. If anything, I think it should be a little more like that, so that it's not corporations that have much of a say. See, but then the government can control it. But I'm just, the way I, when I think of it like that, I think of Canadian government, it's like, oh, trust, they're not going to cut their pay in half because they don't like what they're reporting. Right. You know, but then if you go think about stuff farther in the East, that is very, very plausible. So I think if anything, legislation should be dependent on the country and it's like cultural and socio-economic situation. Like China totally can have the same laws as us when it comes to the press. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. We'll probably have a podcast on the UN. Oh yeah, for sure. And universal standards. Because for sure. it's a really interesting problem. How do you support the individual while maintaining some sort of standard so that readers or consumers know who to trust and who's just faking it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where do you put the value of the individual versus the value of the nation? Asking questions nobody knows the answers to, folks. That's all for today. <laughs>you guys know all of our citations are in our show notes or linked on our website you can also uh, if you're curious about some of the facts and figures that we mentioned in our show we have them in a facts page that you can look at and don't forget to follow us on twitter at thought to theory and you can always listen to us on anchor and anywhere else you listen to your podcast thanks for listening to this episode of thought theory and we'll see you next time